Life Christian Centre is a church located in the city of Adelaide. It is made up of people from different backgrounds and walks of life who have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at www.life-church.com.au Well, it is an incredible pleasure to have uh, Dr. Alan Meyer with us uh, this morning. For those that don't know, uh, Alan's married to Helen. They've been in ministry for, for many, many years. They are the authors of the Life Keys courses. We've done a whole bunch of them, Search for Life, Man to Man, Woman to Woman, and of course the, uh, the Valiant Man course, which um, we've done again and again and again in this course, in this church. It's a program that's helping uh, many men overcome sexual addiction and a real word for the times that we're living in uh, today. Uh, Alan is an incredible communicator uh, of the Word of God. He is the real deal. Uh, just an incredible friend uh, of, of this church. And uh, I know you're going to be blessed this morning as he comes to share the mighty word of God. Would you give him a big, big, big welcome as he comes to minister the word today? Love you, mate. Thank you, bro. Thank you, Pastor. I want to share with you a little journey that, uh, and tonight with the men, I, I'm uh, I've been having an encounter with God uh, myself over the last um, six or eight months in particular, and I want to share something with the men uh, from that tonight. But in my home church, um, I've, I've got my foot in two churches at the moment. One is Stairway with uh, Pastor Peter McHugh, and the other is what's now known as Numa or the Bridge Church in Melbourne, pastored by the man who used to be my youth pastor, Corey Turner. And Helen and I are planting life keys in Numa Church, and so we're balancing uh, our, our time between those two churches. Um, in the Stairway Church, there's been an interesting emergence amongst the young people because Pastor Peter McHugh's son, David, has, is kind of like the voice of the millennials. And as a result, we're starting to kind of hear amongst the, the, the younger followers of Jesus... Words that I haven't really used much in my journey as, a, as an older Christian. Those two words are the word shalom and the word justice. Now, um, I kind of got a bit peeved, you know, when you're old and new people want to, young people want to come in and tell you stuff. You think, oh, I don't need the young people to tell me things. I don't have plenty of stuff. You know, don't have new, new words, shalom. You know, I'm, not, I'm Australian, I'm not, a, I'm not Israeli, shalom. And now justice. See, justice was a, was a problem for me. Trying to get my head around the way young Christians are dealing with the idea of justice. Because, you see, I have a problem with justice. I've grown up all my life, that word has not been connected to life the way young men and women of followers of Jesus today are doing that. Justice, for me, was a word that when a, a judge put a murderer in prison for life, that's justice. See, that's what ought to happen. And injustice is when he then gets parole after five years for killing someone, that's injustice. And I, I've had that kind of a view. Justice is when the sheriff pins on his badge, puts his six guns on the side and goes out and catches bad guys. That's justice. They're using the word justice in a very different way. And, and I only ever knew how to use that term really in a legal sense. And yet it is a term that just, it, it appears right through the Bible. And I hadn't really fully recognized its implications. The big word for me, because I grew up as a kid in the 50s and the 60s. In fact, I was nine years old when Billy Graham held that massive 
a revival service on the MCG in Melbourne. More than 140,000 people spilled out onto the, onto the Oval. I was there with my mum and dad on that day. And the big word in my day was the word salvation. And the question was, are you saved? You know, have you been born again? And I guess that was the, the word then that as a youngster, I kind of wrestled with, am I saved? Am I in or am I out? And uh, I guess as far as my Christianity was concerned, I grew up going to a Lutheran church. And the way we answered the question as to whether I'm saved or not was, well, what do you actually believe? You know, what do you believe? And it is important what you believe, but this is how I defined my Christianity, what do you believe? And for us, it, we were creedal Christians. Um, the, perhaps the most uh, simplest or the most foundational of, of all of the statements about whether you're in or out as a believer was the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed didn't appear until 150 years after Jesus. It took a while to get that together. And many of you would know the Apostles' Creed, and it's a great creed, and this was how I kind of figured out whether I was in or out. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And, and, and I could tick every one of those boxes. Absolutely. I, I got no argument with that at all. And that's how I viewed my uh, relationship with God. I believe the right stuff and I'm kind of, I must therefore be in. Now, as a Lutheran, it didn't bother me a lot that I stole petrol from other people's cars and used the petrol to get to choir practice on a Thursday night. And, and it didn't bother me a lot that I stole my lunch from the university cafeteria every day. That, that did not kind of, because there's nothing much in there about that, you see? There's no box in there about petrol and there's no box in there about Chico Rolls and Dim Sims. And so as, as a result, that never really crossed my mind as being um, indicative of maybe where I was as far as my relationship with God. Now, once a month, it used to get more complicated. Once a month, we would have communion. And in our communion services, we went to the next creed, which was the Nicene Creed, and it took 325 years AD before we got that one together. And we would read that on our communion services. Now, let me read a little bit of it to you so you get a sense of now we're really getting deep. I mean, this is really deep Christianity. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being in one with the Father, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit and was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. And it goes on and on. This is the Apostles' Creed magnified. More words in there and lots more explanation about tricky things. Very good. Following the, that, the development then into the Athanasian Creed, uh, you're really in deep water. Now we're dealing with the pre-existent Jesus and the fully divine nature of Jesus and yet the fully human nature of Jesus and we're putting really complex together, things together and all of these um, statements of belief are all important. I'm not saying to you they're not important. And they, and they focus on four major things. 
they focus on you've got to understand that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Secondly, you've got to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You've got to understand that he was raised from the dead and he lives forever. And you've got to understand that at the end of it all, there's heaven. And I could tick every one of those boxes. And that was how I viewed my, the surety of my relationship with, with God. Interesting thing is, if you go right back to Jesus and the early church, it wasn't that complex. Now, last year I was here and I shared with you uh, a message which none of you will remember, but I shared with you a message on the most important conversation I ever had in university because in the middle of all of my misbehavior, and this is the wonderful thing about God, um, he's, he's long-suffering. He puts up with all kinds of silliness in, as he seeks to draw us to himself. And here I am living this bizarre life. I've, I've got, I tick all the boxes on the belief stuff, but my life has no, no ways it got the fingerprints of discipleship on, uh, on it at all. And he calls me into the ministry. He didn't turn up and say, you've got to stop stealing petrol, you've got to cut that. He said, I want you to be a minister. Well, I didn't want to be a minister, and it was the most important conversation I ever had was in university where a young Baptist boy explained to me I was trying to marry a dishwasher. I was trying to have Jesus for my saviour, but I had no intention of him being my Lord, of, me, of, of him being the, the last word about my life. And in, and in the middle of that, I had a confrontation that no one had told me that in 18 years of going to church. No one had explained that to me. But if you went back to the early church, it's extraordinary how different what they were teaching new believers about the Christian life. It wasn't, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and ticking all those boxes, important boxes, but that's not what they were saying. Let me read to you um, a first century discipleship document. The first century. Because if you go back to the first century, that wasn't the focus of are you in or are you a real Christian or are you not? That wasn't it. It was a little different than that. But you've got to go back and read an early discipleship document to get the feel of just how different it was. And the Didache is an example of that. It's a first century discipleship document. I'm not saying to you that this is part of the Bible. I'm just saying that this is a document that exists from the first century, which demonstrates what the New Testament church was teaching new believers. It's a bit like Martin Luther's catechism for new believers, only it's a first century one. Let me read to you a little bit from the Didache. Chapter 1, verse 1. There are two paths, one of life and one of death, and the difference is great between the two paths. Now, the path of life is this. First, you shall love the God who made you, thy neighbour as thyself, and all things that you would not should be done unto you, do not do unto another. And the doctrine of these maxims is as follows. Bless them that curse you. Pray for your enemies. Fast on behalf of those who persecute you. For what thank is there if you love those who love you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. But do you love them that hate you? And then you won't have an enemy. Abstain from fleshly and worldly lusts. If anyone gives you a blow on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if you want to be perfect, if anyone compels you to go a mile, go with him too. What are you hearing? 
Anyone, anyone tell me, what does this remind you of? Sermon on the Mount, exactly. What we've, what we've been discipled into here is not so much a series of faith statements, but that's the life of Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. This is really a... You need to know this is what Jesus said. If a man takes away your cloak, punch him in the mouth, tell him, don't you touch my stuff. No, no, he says... Um, if a man take away thy cloak, give him thy coat also. And if a man take from thee what is thine, ask not for it again, for neither art thou able to do so. Give to everyone that asks of thee. Oh, it's a funny thing, I was preaching in a church a number of years ago, and a guy came up to me at the end of, the, of, at the end of my, my message, and he said, you, you Christians don't believe anything of what you, what you uh, preach. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because you, you never do what's actually in the Bible. I said, well, really? He said, yeah. He said, all right, well, then give me 50 bucks. <laughs> and I said, what's that about? He said, well, Jesus said, give to everyone that asks of you and ask not again. Give me 50 bucks. So I took my wallet out and I gave him 50 bucks. I, I wonder to this day what God will do with that moment. Now, I could have had a lot of arguments about why I don't have to do that because it doesn't mean what it says. I just thought I'd just do what it said and see what happened to him. He walked away. I guarantee you he's never been able to get that out of his mind. <laughs> now, I could have had a better, a really good argument. He could have said, yeah, I could have won the argument, but, but he, he was saying no one will do what Jesus said. And I thought, well, if he'd asked for the whole lot, I might have had an argument, but I can, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to give him 50 bucks and just see what happens. It's not that much money. What's my point? The difference in the early church was that people knew whether they were in or out, whether they focused their life on Jesus and being like Jesus and doing what Jesus said. In fact, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, and this has been something I've been going back to the Sermon on the Mount over and over again and just reading pieces of it and saying, is, is this it? Is this the kingdom? You see, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say these words to you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, for the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Um, here was the stunning revelation about the issue of my Christianity was that I could tick all the big beef belief boxes, but I had never contemplated just focusing on the life and the ministry and the words of Jesus. And if I look back on my Lutheran heritage, I realise that what, there, are, there are a number of serious issues that I think the church, right at this point in its history, all over the Western world, has to confront. The first was very, made very clear to me as a young man, as a, as a Lutheran youth leader, because I, I got kind of moved by that salvation word and I realised that 
um, at some one point that God called me into the ministry and all those years I'd been telling myself I was a follower of Jesus and I wasn't a follower of Jesus at all. I just believed a whole bunch of major truths. I just was willing to accept them as true. And then I began to realise if, if all the rest of my youth group are in the same place as me, we need help, you know, we need to repent and, and really have revival around here. And as a result, when I began to, to, to share that or preach that, you know, we need to follow Christ and do the, 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 the words of Jesus and re repent and get born again, I was rebuked because they said, you, you can't say that to Lutheran kids because they're already in. You, you're, you're challenging them to get into the kingdom, but they're already in. And the reason we know they're in is because they've been baptised they when they were infants. And don't you know that infant baptism is the door to salvation? And now you're telling people who are already in to get in. And my said, but hang on, they're not in. Have a look at the life. But they said, no, that, that's not where you look because don't you know it's by grace alone, by faith alone, by the cross alone, by Christ alone. You, you can't look at people's behaviour and say, well, you need to get in because they're already in. And I said, no, no, I was one of them. You know, we weren't in at all. We were here, but we weren't in. We were not in the kingdom at all. We were in the world up to, up to our eyeballs. And I suddenly realised where I was and it scared the daylights out of me. And I realised that my church was fearful of doing anything because we were so aware that it had to be Christ alone, self, grace alone, faith alone, that we couldn't do anything. And yet Jesus said that, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, there's the litmus test. Am I doing what Jesus said? Am I following Jesus? We were so scared of works. God is not against works. He's against earning. He's not, he's not hostile about effort. He's, he's concerned about earning. If you think you can earn salvation, you can't. But if you think you're going to somehow live out salvation without doing anything, you've lost the plot because it's an obedience issue. The Lordship of Jesus is follow me. Oh, yeah, I can't, I'm believing that. No, no, no. You, you ought to put one foot after another. You need to walk this out with me. Or you, as James would put it, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. I deceived myself for years because I was afraid if we were doing anything, it was salvation works. No, 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 no. The, the, the doing is obedience that flows from faith. And as, as James would say, you say you've got faith, show me the work, show me the money. You say you got faith, show me the money. Because he said, I'll show you my faith by my works. My obedience is the litmus test of my faith. And as a consequence, I realised that I'd grown up for years in a, an environment in which the people were afraid of, of effort. They were afraid of fasting and prayer. And they were afraid of stretching out into discipleship because this will be works and I'll be damaging my salvation. No, no, you won't be damaging your salvation until you try to earn your salvation. But if your salvation calls you to an effort of obedience, that's brilliant. That's the proof of your salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling because it is by grace, but it's demonstrated by obedience. That was the first thing. The second thing is that when you perceive your Christianity is being encompassed in a series of blocks of ideas that you can put a tick to, um, the question emerges naturally in an Australian's heart, well, how much do I have to do to get in? How many ticks do I need to get in? 
And how many ticks do I need to stay in? That's a terrible question. It, no one steps up to the, to the, to the um, altar to get married and say, how many things do I have to do for this to be a fair dingham wedding? What? Now, how much do I have to do to, to, to get married and stay in there? How much do I have to do? Oh, that's why there's a lot of marriage counselling. Because it's not about how many things do I have to, to do to make sure I really am married and how many things do I have to tick to say. No, this is about oneness. This is a journey that doesn't end. This is a journey without parameters and without limits. This is not a journey of laws. It's a journey of spirit. And the whole call to marriage is that we would become one. And there's well, no tick list of how much to show and say I'm still in. And yeah, and I'm done enough to stay in. What kind of miserable relationship is that? And discipleship and Christianity is, is a call to intimacy with Jesus. It's a call to follow him all the way into eternity. Yeah, how much do I have to do to stay? Don't you? What? Where does that come from? But that's exactly where I was. Because when you view your intimacy or relationship with God in terms of these build blocks of I've done enough to get in, I've crossed the line, I'm in. Then, of course, you can say, well, I've done enough. And that's exactly where I was before God called me. I spent that week before he called me into ministry trying to figure out a tick list of the stuff I was prepared to do. How saved was I prepared to be in order to make sure I didn't go to hell? And in the middle of that, he said, well, you've got a problem drawing that line because I haven't got a line for you. I've got a calling for you. And the calling is, will you follow me? And I'd like to use your whole life. Oh, flip, that wasn't on my list, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, and, and, and yet it was on Helen's list when she married me, hoping that that's what would be in my heart. It wouldn't be, well, how much do I have to do to be, you know, to cross the line and be a husband? Don't you dare do that. If that's where you are right now, that's why your marriage needs help. It's why you're miserable. It's why you're miserable. It's why she or he is miserable. It's because that's not a marriage. That's a penal establishment. Um, the, the miracle of intimacy is a call to do a journey. And these two dreadful um, mindsets have the capacity to so cripple our walk with God that it doesn't become a walk with God really anymore. And out of that, there comes such a brokenness that we wonder ourselves, is this, is this, what, well, is this salvation? And the answer is, no, it's not. We just got confused. So what do you say we start the real thing? The real thing is intimacy with Jesus. And there are no t there's not a tick list. We're going to follow him. And you're going to follow him uh, all the way on into eternity. And there's, there's no stopping. There's no point of saying, well, I've ticked enough boxes now. You know, this is about as far as a man needs to go. And out of that kind of relationship, I have been uh, finding myself in a whole process of change. I begin to become aware of, I, want to, I, don't, I don't know you well enough, Jesus. And so now I find myself back here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm finding a whole new understanding of this call to become like Jesus. You've heard that it was said, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Sometimes people say, you know, oh, I'm not into, you know, that religious whole thing. I'm just into the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. Really? Have you ever read the thing? Good Lord. Oh, read the sermon, it'll scare the jimmy out of you. But what you've got to understand, see, this is not a new law that's harder to jump over. It's just the extent to which he is seeking to draw us after himself. And what I find myself interested in is that the people who actually have the breakthroughs, the people who are actually finding the miracle of a connection with Jesus, are beginning to recognize that my struggle, for example, with pornography wasn't just about getting cleaned up enough that I could tick the box and say, I'm not doing that like I used to do. It's realizing that in the heart of God, there was a purity about sex that he is drawing us into and you need to be prepared to be desperate to pursue that. Let me read you a couple of letters that I have received over the last few months. Some of them are extraordinary. Let me read you this one. Because people can be in church and, and, and really wanting God and really seeing themselves as followers of Jesus and, and somehow getting stuck somewhere, not realizing this is a journey. He's drawn me into a marriage, not into crossing a line. I'm in. Ha -ha. Let me read you this one. A guy called John. He says, Hi, Alan, my name's John. Last year, I had the opportunity to participate in the Valiant Man course. I just wanted to say thanks. Because in June 2017, I came clean about my porn addiction to my wife from whom I had just separated. He was in ministry, by the way, at this time. I heard about your course just afterward. I, it, I was the ugliest version of myself back then. In addition to the addiction, I had become verbally and emotionally abusive to her. I was angry all the time and disinterested in sex. And that's not uncommon for a sex addict. He's in, disinterested in sex with a real woman, but blowing up his whole character, sitting there with porn DVDs, as if somehow flickering images on a screen are more satisfying than a relationship with a real human being. And he goes on. I had no idea... Uh, what coming clean would accomplish and it was hard so very hard until I'd done it now it's changed everything wounds started the long process of healing and we began reconciling I've kept clean since then thanks in no small part to valiant man the support of trusted friends and the amazing forgiveness of my wife I pulled out of church ministry to heal and I have not regretted it my wife and I now worship together as never before. We're back together again. I keep myself accountable to her and to my accountability partners. Our love life is the best and healthiest it has ever been, as is my relationship with God and my kids. I don't own a computer anymore, and the anger I had carried around is gone. I've also at last come to terms with having been sexually abused as a child. In an unexpected turn of events, I've experienced physical healing this past year as well. I had been dealing with chronic nerve pain the doctors couldn't explain. It should have healed. For almost a decade, this went on. After coming clean and staying clean, I noticed the pain had gone. I went from walking with a cane, the agony was so bad, to running around with my kids and playing. I now have full-time work and I can provide for my family. 
I have been clean for 11 months now. No porn, no masturbation, and I've never felt more free. No day or night is easy, but being continually transparent keeps the burden light. I know porn is an addiction that takes most, if not all, of its power from the shadows, so to speak. Staying out of the dark helps a great deal. Something uh, is profoundly different now, and I just want it to stay that way. Thank you for all the words of wisdom in the Valiant Man course. You've helped change my life, and I and my wife could not be more grateful. I just wanted you to know. Man in full-time ministry. You see, God is so gracious. He saw that little boy sexually abused all those years ago. And all those years ago, that little boy never had any real insight as he struggled with the damage on the inside, carried it on into his marriage, and then watched his life degenerate as that area of darkness just consumed his life. And then Jesus came. Well, didn't Jesus come before? Well, no, not, no he wasn't willing to follow Jesus because, you see, one of the things that we, right at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we teach this in every one of our Life Keys courses. Take these words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Sometimes we're just not broken enough to get really humble. But when humility came and he went to Jesus and said, I'm desperate, I will follow you. His body is healed. His marriage has come back together again. There's peace in his soul because the gospel really works. But it wasn't about just believing big blocks of, of, of doctrine. It was about following Jesus in a walk of purity. And it took a while before he could get there. Let me read you one more. I, I get scared when I read some of these. So I have no idea what I've unleashed on people sometimes. Guy says this, in 2008, I started facilitating the Valiant Man program. So we're talking about a facilitator. And for some time, I was able to hide my baggage because I was the facilitator. I was the one with the knowledge and I must have the perfect sex life, or so my participants thought. However, I had an addiction to sex of the worst kind. As I watched the participants be healed each week using your material, I so wanted what they had. Watching their lives change only seemed to drive more nails into my soul and throw me deeper into my addiction. But on the 10th of December 2010, I walked into a police station of my own free will and with a list of every sexual event I could remember that I'd done involving young people, I asked them to arrest me. I did not want to solicit a present and the written statement I presented with said that my victims, the view of my victims will be the one that you can use in court. My nine-year sentence finished last month. The cost on that day was everything. My wife left me. Three teenage children disowned me. My business was taken off me. And just about every friend I had left my life. And I understand why they left. And I have no ill feelings about that. I lived a lie. However, on that day, the gain was the Holy Spirit was now given the right to heal me. Because I allowed it. I had to die not on the outside but on the inside for only then can one be truly born again. <laughs> on the day of my arrest, I stopped being the coach and threw myself into the arena of healing. Today, my ex-wife is my best friend. My three children have completely reconciled with me. I am the commercial manager of a huge organisation and they know every detail of my past. 
God has restored not what the locust destroyed. He has restored what I destroyed. He has restored what I destroyed. Thank you because you pointed me to Jesus and gave me the tools to heal. I do not think you will ever know just how many people you have helped. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know what the secret of the kingdom is? It's all about Jesus. The real Jesus. Do not think for a minute that what I'm saying to you is that doctrine doesn't matter. That understanding the big building blocks of Christian theology doesn't matter. It's really important because these are the bulwarks against another kind of deception. But there's a profound kind of deception that, that sits so easily in the human heart that if I tick mental boxes, I don't have to obey. I don't have to follow Jesus into difficult places. I don't ever have to make the hard decision of obedience. But it's where the life is. The life is in Christ. The life is found in him. Um, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. I want to encourage you. Go back to the Sermon on the Mount over the coming weeks and read some of it every single day. Just take the words of Jesus. One last thing I want to say. I had a talk with a dear friend of mine uh, during the week. And he was, he's really, really excited because their church has been growing at about 10% to 12% every year and the churches they're planning are growing at the rate of 30%. And he said, we've discovered something about sharing our faith. He said, what we've discovered about sharing our faith is the simplicity of simply inviting people to read the words of Jesus with us. And he said, what we do is we try to find someone who's got an open heart, because you can't get, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine and don't give what's holy to the dogs. That's the Sermon on the Mount too. In other words, no point trying to bash down the door of someone who doesn't like you and isn't responsive to you. They, they, they put the, they've got the, the guardians up. But there are people who know you and love you. And he said, we learn to go to them and say, look, I'm just wondering, I'm trying to find someone to read the Bible with. Would you read the Bible with me? And he said, we just sit down, we read a few words from the Bible, maybe, you know, 10 verses or so. And then we, I say, would you like to read that back to me? And they read it. And then we say, why don't we sit for a minute and just ask Jesus to say, Lord, what would you have us do about it? We sit there for a minute and just wait. And then I say, well, what, what, did, what do you think? It's, it is amazing how in those moments Jesus shows up to explain to people, if I was in your situation, this is what I'd do. And out of this comes a transforming power. He said, I shared this with an Anglican minister. He said, my Anglican friend had a Muslim who was, uh, a, lived close and he was a friend. And he said, I went home and I tried it on my Muslim friend. He said, I've, I've been thinking of reading the Bible. Would you, would you like to read the Bible with me? He said, oh, he said, yeah, the Bible's a holy book for us too. And yet I've never read it. So why don't we read the Bible again? So we sat down. He said, we read a few verses and we stepped back and I, we, we said, well, let's just ask Jesus to, what does he think? And at the end of it, they had a profound discussion. His Muslim friend went home, got all of his Muslim friends together and said, why don't we read the Bible again? They started on Acts chapter 17. They read about the Philippian jailer. They read enough verses to about where the Philippian jailer repents and gets baptised. And then they stopped. And he said, why don't we just sit and ask uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, well, ask God what, what, what he thinks we should do. He said, at the end of that, one woman pipes up and says, I want to give my life to Jesus like the Philippian sailor and I want to be baptised in Jesus' name too. So he said, we took her in the bath and we baptised her. <laughs> Muslims baptising people in Jesus' name 
because they just read it in the Bible. It says it's an extraordinary thing. Following Jesus is the, it's the power of Christianity. If you've been using um, the scripture to shield you from Jesus, it's not, it's not helping. If you can get desperate enough to just lean in, if you've been struggling with an issue that is profound um, and you've wandered the way through, the, the answer is that Jesus said, follow me. What if you were to drop all of the religious issues and all of the attempts to find Bible verses that either justify or shield you from him and just present yourself to Jesus and say, I need help. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, show me, uh, what would you do in my situation? Because the power of our walk with God is found in an intimacy with Jesus, not a ticking of boxes. May God today take this rambling message and help you connect it to wherever it fits in your life. Because I've never done this message before and I only made it up for this morning. So if it's no good, it'll never be preached again. <laughs> You'll be safe. But I believe I was here today. To, there'll be people in this, in this uh, building today for whom f- fragments or elements of this are your way forward. It's your way forward. And if you'd just be willing for a moment, we're going to bow our heads for a moment. The, the team are coming out the door. They're going to play in just a moment. I want you to take a quiet moment. Just bow your hearts. Bow your head. I'm going to pray for you and then... We're going to take just a minute. And this is what you're going to ask Jesus. Jesus, what do you want me to do about this message? Jesus, here are your people. We all love you. And we're never always aware of the ways in which we have kind of made, uh, put ourselves in a box. I pray today that you would breathe on everyone here with an honest heart and an earnest cry. Speak to them. What do you want them to do? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Breathe upon them, I pray.